according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah, which we have begun three weeks ago, covering chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, week by week, O ye of little faith. Today we reach Isaiah chapter 4. Admittedly, I I am not comfortable with this speed. It is not my standard depth or style. And yet this is what the Lord has provided for us. I believe that doctrine is to be taught in its length and width and height and depth. According to Ephesians chapter 3, we are to know the length and width and height and depth, to know the love of, of Christ that surpasseth knowledge. And in those dimensions of teaching, we have the blessings of His Word. And so at the 9.30 hour in the book of Galatians, Wednesday night in the book of Galatians, Wednesday morning in the book of Proverbs, we have the more in-depth, verse-by-verse, word-by-word, digging it out. This hour, though, we have the the length and the width, or the height. We have the the panorama, the big picture. And um, it's my plan at this point. We'll see if the Lord has other plans. But my plan at this point is to teach 66 chapters of Isaiah in 66 weeks. And at least through three weeks, uh, we have maintained that pace. Uh, Likewise, we're going to follow Isaiah with 52 chapters of Jeremiah. And I'm convicted that our nation needs Isaiah and Jeremiah more than ever before. That the apostasy of our nation, the pending destruction of our nation may be such that if believers don't have the doctrine of Isaiah and Jeremiah, then we will be ill-suited to deal with uh, the assignment before us if, in fact, uh, those dark days are coming in uh, in our generation. So keep uh, keep these things in your prayers and then ask the Lord to bless these series as uh, he has laid it on my heart to feed this flock. All right, Isaiah chapter 4. We actually took verse 1 already and included that at the end of chapter 3, so our message is even shorter today. It's the shortest chapter in the whole book. We've got to deal with verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And uh, it's a marvelous chapter to reach on a communion Sunday because the time is always at a premium on uh, communion Sunday. So remember God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to humble yourself, to prepare your heart in humility for the doctrine of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word, and and I do rejoice, Father, over Isaiah and Jeremiah, these Old Testament prophets that are referenced in Hebrews 11, Father, men of whom the world is not worthy. And we view their ministry, uh, even though they, they stayed faithful, Father, in the spite of all the affliction and mistreatment, Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years to illustrate, to, to make the point that you wanted made, Father. And we see some of these things and we wonder, would we be half as obedient? Would we, would we truly follow in that example? So, Father, I pray that the message of your word might hit home, that we might be humble to receive the word implanted, that we might even be admonished to recognize that the uh, ministry in the Old Testament was uh, not worthy to be compared to the eternal blessings we have in Christ and that your expectations of us are far more than you ever held Isaiah or Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. You never held them to the high standard you hold us to, Father. And uh, if, if that's not yet clear to each one of us sitting here today, then I pray that today might be the start of, of your making that clear. That, Father, you might impress upon us where we are in the body of Christ and how the, uh, the expectations are that much higher. Thank you, Father, again, for your truth in this time today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 4. In that day, in that day, what day is that? It's the day that uh, Jesus Christ sits on his throne. It's the day that his purpose is achieved. Uh, when wrath is poured out, when, uh, when Jesus Christ is ruling from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. The information we saw last week from chapter 3. In the day when there is such depopulation and turmoil, trying to recover from different things, where seven, William, uh, seven w- women will take hold of one man in that day. And uh, what happens to a population when most of the men are killed in war to begin with? And uh, the circumstances there. In that day, just pencil in for yourself the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride of the adornment of the survivors 
of Israel. And remember, there won't be many, but the, those who do survive, the remnant that do survive, are in God's eternal plan, part of the uh, recorded book of life. And we see that in verse 3. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. And the only record book that counts is God's record book. And and if your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, then uh, rejoice over that. And uh, we'll be discussing these uh, issues here in these verses. But the uh, tribulation of Israel is going to be something unlike anything this world has ever seen. It is a day of wrath unlike any that has come before and unlike any that will come after. And it is a day that had God not been gracious and merciful, all flesh would be wiped out upon this earth. They had the destructive capacity to end human life. And of course, God's not going to allow that to happen. He has promises that he's made to Israel that he has to fulfill. And this is going to be part of our encouragement today and in the coming chapters as well throughout Isaiah and throughout Jeremiah. So uh, everyone who remains, who is left and who remains, who endures, who endures to the end so as to be saved, all right? Those are verses that, that refer to the enemies surrounding Jerusalem, that refer to the uh, deliverance that will come when Messiah returns and uh, conquers and Armageddon and throws down the forces of Satan. And uh, if anyone tries to hit you with that endure to the end to be saved thing as if it's a, it's a verse that threatens you might lose your salvation, just laugh and say, no, no, no. Let me explain the way of God to you more accurately and you'll have an opportunity to bear fruit and teach eternal security to someone that's uh, maladjusted in their eschatology. All right. So again, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. All right, does that sound familiar at all? All right, that dusting off the cobwebs of your memory from Sunday school and years gone by? This is the Exodus. This is the wilderness wandering, recreated in the cloud and the pillar. And it will be a feature of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. All right, so this will be our easiest of all the messages so far. Five short verses to deal with in, uh, in this chapter. And uh, I'd say we've got a, a fairly decent chance of making it. First of all, the branch. The branch of Yahweh. You've got to love the study on the branch. Particularly, though, I hope that we can study the branch for its own sake from its Old Testament perspective. The last thing you want to do is immediately rush off to John 15 and confuse yourself with the church reality. When Jesus teaches that uh, I am the vine, my Father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my Father prunes and so forth. If you immediately see the word branch and go running to the New Testament, to the church age in John 15, I think you're going to um, do yourself some harm. And you're actually going to miss some of the blessings of what the branch prophecies are about in the Old Testament setting, precisely as they were given for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. And I think we do much better if we allow the promise to sit in its own context, if we accept the the branch terminology, the messianic terminology of the branch for its own sake, as it appears throughout the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do this morning. The branch of Yahweh... Y-H-W-H, that's Yahweh, that's the personal name of the Lord God Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, uh, the Tetragrammaton Yahweh. The branch of Yahweh is a beautiful messianic promise, and we must accept it on its own terms. If we try to rewrite it, if we try to recast it, if we try to steal it away from the people it was given to, then we are damaging scripture and we are damaging our own faith. So let's, uh, let's not do that here today. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Can't wait. I'm looking forward for this day, but we're not here yet. All right? You and I are still operating in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. 
And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. What are these messianic promises related to the branch? Well, it's going to come up again in chapter 11. What we have here is just an intro. What we have here is just a boy, wait till the branch arrives. It will be beautiful. It will be glorious. It will be uh, for the survivors. It will be a thing to celebrate. But we don't have specific details about who the branch is. In fact, if we limited our understanding of the branch to chapter 4, it may, it may not seem like a who. It may seem like a what. And we might think, okay, well, what's the branch then? And we might not even know that the branch we're looking for is not a what. The branch we're looking for is a who. All right? Until we compare this to chapter 11, and until we compare this to Jeremiah, a couple of passages in Jeremiah. All right, and if you really want to get involved with it, then you're going to knock yourself out with all 18 Hebrew words that can be translated as branch <laughs> and start to focus. You get lost in the forest through the trees, as it were. We're going to try to keep it on a simplified basis this hour. We won't get through chapter 4. But the branch terminology, the branch terminology. Why do you think David Koresh, why do you think that cult group chose branch Davidian as a part of their language? Why, why is branch significant? Okay, branch is very significant in the Old Testament as applies to the messianic promises for Israel and the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. The branch will come from the stem of Jesse and through him, obviously, through his son, David. This branch will come from the stem of Jesse, conquering and ruling this world. And so in Isaiah 11, which I anticipate we'll get to in about seven weeks, uh, we're going to see this. All right. A shoot will spring from the stem of of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And there's like four or five different plant terms in that one verse, right? The shoot, the stem, the branch, the roots, and the fruit. And all of this demonstrates the plan of God for Israel, which at first is hidden. At first it's underground. You can't see it, but then it shoots forth. Now you can start to see the tiniest part of it. And then you watch it as it grows. And what initially seems kind of insignificant actually is going to be uh, great and mighty by the time God's done with it. And this is the nature of his promises as it unfolds to Israel when he calls David the runt of the litter, all right, the, the, from Jesse. And all the older sons were made to parade by, and Sam, even Samuel was all impressed with how tall, dark, and handsome they were. And the Lord said, quit looking at the externals. God looks at the heart. And then the smallest one, the ruddy youth, was brought in from the, from the shepherd fields. And God said, that's my man. That's the, the, the king of Israel. That's the man after my own heart. All right. Ultimately, though, of course, it's not David. It's the son of David that fulfills these prophecies. And so a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And uh, it's pretty common to count the seven facets of the spirit here and related to the seven spirits of God before his throne in uh, Revelation. We'll talk about that about seven weeks from today. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The first world conqueror that makes doctrine a priority. All right. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Everybody that's dreaming about perfect government, well, keep dreaming because it's not here yet. And you'll never have it until Jesus Christ comes and rules. And all, everyone with their visualized world peace bumper stickers and whatnot, trying to usher in a millennial kingdom without the millennial king, what are they really trying to do? And uh, I think they need uh, some remedial courses out of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Hopefully uh, set that record straight. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. The millennial reign will be brutal as he enforces divine norms and standards. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, faithfulness the belt about his waist, Amazing how everyone wants to ignore that, dismiss it, pretend it's not there. They want to get to the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, a little boy will lead them. They, they can't wait for this uh, utopia they're envisioning, but they want a utopia on their terms, not with a conquering Jesus Christ reigning according to the will of God the Father. All right, well, I won't teach it all today. We'll save that for 
seven weeks from now. The branch will come from the stem of Jesse, conquering and ruling this world. The global gathering of Israel will cause the exodus to be forgotten. The exodus to be forgotten. You realize ever since the exodus, the Jewish people have always understood that Yahweh Elohim is their Lord God. He is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God who delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, who brought them through the wilderness, who brought them into their promised land. And to this day, he is still the God of the Exodus. He is the God who redeemed them from bondage in Egypt. To this day, this is still the remembrance of Yahweh. It will not be the case after Armageddon. He will no longer be Yahweh who brought us out of the land of Egypt. He will be Yahweh who regathered us from the four corners of the earth. He will be Yahweh who established us in millennial peace on this earth. The global gathering of Israel will cause the exodus to be forgotten. And in these references, once again, it is branch. It is the branch that takes center stage. Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33. So we have these coming up as well in about 90 more Sundays. All right. Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And remember, when Jeremiah is ministering, there are armies surrounding Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to fall. The throne of David is about to be vacated. There's already one Davidic king that's been carried off into captivity, and another Davidic puppet has been set up in terms of Zedekiah. And uh, there's not a lot of hope for people that that think that, uh, that God has turned his back on them. Jeremiah is telling them, no, there's all the hope in the world. He says, I got plans for you, plans for your blessing. All right, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. The reunion again of Israel and Judah. Remember, they'd been divided after Solomon. They'd been divided, and the northern kingdom was gone 150 years ago before the southern kingdom was swept away, long before Jeremiah ever started ministering. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom were swept off into Assyria. And so here's Jeremiah prophesying to this remnant that uh, Israel has a future. Israel and Judah will be reunited. In his days, the days of the branch, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, all of this, of course, is second advent. He never claimed this title in first advent. He died on the cross so he could provide righteousness, but he never claimed the title. He never claimed the title branch. He always referred to himself as son of man. Jesus was very clear to, to, to distinguish between first advent and second advent fulfillments of, uh, of his earthly ministry. This is awaiting future fulfillment in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah 23, 7. When they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But this is what they will start saying. As the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the house of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. They will have a much greater remembrance, a much greater testimony than simply the Exodus event under Moses. Jeremiah 33. Verses 15 and 16. Context for this, uh, verse 14, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Who were these promises made to? They weren't made to the church. All right, and everybody that tries to lay claim to promises that they weren't made to and say, well, we're going to redirect them to us is violating the nature of language and the nature of the Scriptures. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Again, Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Anyway, we'll get into some more things there. 
The global gathering of Israel will cause the Exodus to be forgotten. Now, has this gathering already happened? There's Jews in Israel today, right? There's in there a Jewish state today. Yes, the Jews are in the land today, but they are in the land in unbelief. They are in the land not by faith, not looking upon him whom they pierced, not repenting of having crucified their Christ. That's going to require tribulation on earth to where they will view him whom they pierced. Then they will humble themselves and uh, accept the Messiah that they crucified in his first advent. A man whose name is Branch will harmonize the royal and priestly offices. A man whose name is Branch will harmonize the royal and priestly offices, according to Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 6. Wouldn't surprise me when we get done with Isaiah and Jeremiah, if we're not profited out, we might uh, think about Ezekiel and and, uh, Zechariah and prophets of that nature. Uh, since we're focusing before the captivity in Isaiah, Jeremiah, maybe we'll go to Ezekiel as a captive prophet and then Zechariah in the post-captivity era. But a man whose name is Branch is featured in Zechariah chapter 3. And this is significant because all of the branch terminology and yet uh, Jesus did, did not claim these titles, did not exercise these prerogatives. He came to seek and to save the lost, not to judge them, not to condemn them, not to bring it, not to conquer and bring in a kingdom. Zechariah 3, verses 8 through 10. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, there are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. And remarkably enough, when they came back from their captivity, when Zedekiah came back, when Joshua the high priest came back, they provided uh, earthly leadership and spiritual leadership. Zedekiah, even though he was the, I mean, uh, Zerubbabel, even though Zerubbabel was the heir of David, he never laid claim to that throne. He was humble and he ruled as a Persian governor. And Joshua, the high priest, right there with him, the two of them painted a picture. They painted a picture of faithfulness. They portrayed Jesus Christ in an eschatological fulfillment. And so behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. And we're going to see a lamb with seven eyes in Revelation. Behold, it will engrave, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. What does it take to wash and cleanse the land? Well, he's going to do it. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The Jewish people are going to have a tremendous ministry. And uh, sometimes I joke about, wouldn't it be great if we had our own burning bush in our own backyard? Okay, And we could just walk out back and there's the burning bush and we could inquire of the Lord and get answers back and so forth. Well, that's a joke, of course. We don't have that. We've got a, a Bible, a complete canon of Scripture. Um, if, if your bush is burning, put it out. Okay, That's my recommendation. Um, but in the millennial kingdom, the Jewish people, as this verse says, will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. There is a, a reality here that's being prophesied, I think is going to be significant for Bible teaching related to the blessings of Israel, the Jewish people and their stewardship to the Gentile nations. Finally then, Zechariah 6, verses 11 through 15. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Wow, why would you do that? Why would, a, why would a priest have a crown? The priests are the line of Levi. The, the rule comes from the, the tribe of Judah. They're different tribes. Why would you put a crown on a priest? That doesn't seem right. Ah, but if you're going to reveal prophecy and talk about the eschatological kingdom of Jesus Christ, you can prefigure it in a shadow and in a type. And that's what we see here. And so thus say to him, then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. This is the Ezekiel temple, by the way, the millennial temple, not the the one that Antichrist will defile. He who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. For the first time ever, 
We won't have tension between Judah and Levi, tension between king and priest, all right, or tension between church and state, shall we say, as we do today in our culture and all the fights back and forth between secular authority and spiritual authority. It will be united in the person of the branch, Jesus Christ on his throne, who has been promised by his father that thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so uh, there will be the council of peace will be between the two offices. Prophetic for Jesus Christ on his throne. Verses 14 and 15 as it concludes here in Zechariah chapter 6. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. If you follow the third temple movement right now, there's a bunch of Jews right now, and they got the furnishings together and the clothing together and all the implements together and, and everything. They need a red heifer so they can sanctify a, a new high priest, and they want to reinstitute animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. And they're ready to do it just as soon as that mosque is out of their way. All right, there's that mosque on the Temple Mount. We know, and it's kind of interesting to read, but it's you say, well, is that prophecy being fulfilled? I believe there will be a temple because the Antichrist will seat himself there, that he will put a stop to the grain offerings, that he will sit himself in the most holy place, that he will demand worship in the tribulation. So yes, there will be a third temple, but it's the one Antichrist defiles. The fourth temple is the real one. That's the Ezekiel one. That's the one that Christ himself builds after he conquers this world and begins to reign. All right, back to our text today then. Recorded for life in Jerusalem. Recorded for life in Jerusalem. I think if we were to pay better attention to the details, we would stop trying to claim the new covenant for ourselves. The new covenant is with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Likewise, uh, we would stop trying to claim recorded for life in Jerusalem. We are recorded. We are recorded in the Lamb's book of life, but we are recorded for a heavenly possession. We are a heavenly people, not an earthly people. The Jewish people, however, are recorded for life in Jerusalem. And this demonstrates the work of God to achieve His eternal purposes. God's plan is so much bigger than we ever give it credit for. It is eternal in scope, but it also uh, addresses every earthly nation as well as the non-earthly heavenly nation, the bride of Christ. It's not just Israel that has boundaries and land grants. All the Gentile nations as well have boundaries and land grants. Every Gentile nation will have rewards in the millennial kingdom as per their faithfulness and as per their uh, place in terms of God's eternal purpose. The blessings of being recorded and not blotted out means that the heavenly record book is the only one that matters. The heavenly record book is the only one that matters. Do you want to be in the record books? <laughs> right? You know, the, all the athletes want to be in the record books as far as their home run records or their, you know, touchdown records or whatever. Well, the only record book I care about is the Lamb's Book of Life. All right? That's where my name is written down. This is the heavenly record that we all have if you are in Christ. But the, the Lamb's Book of Life is actually introduced earlier than this. It's introduced in Exodus. It's introduced in the Old Testament. And there are promises to the Jewish people related to this book. And this is what we have here too, interestingly enough, recorded for life in Jerusalem. It is an earthly, eternal destiny. Ultimately, on the new earth as well, when the new earth comes about, the earthly destiny of the Jewish people, the earthly destiny of the Gentile people, Even as far back as the book of Job, he anticipated a bodily resurrection and an estate on the earth. Exodus 32. These are important to look at because some people might scare you with them or say, see, see, you can lose your salvation. You can be blotted out of the book of life. Wait a minute. He says, I will not blot you out of the book of life. Exodus 32, verses 32 and 33. And this is when they're all uh, doing the golden calf rebellion. And Moses is interceding on behalf of the Jewish people and their great sin. He says, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. 
Moses says, if you will not forgive this people, then he's volunteering to lose his salvation. Like Paul said, Paul would be accursed if he could save the Jewish people. But go now, lead the people where I told you. See, the Lord's not going to do it. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. So now who are these people that he's going to blot out of his book? And which book are they being blotted out of? Is it the eternal book of life? Or is it the book of life in Jerusalem? All right. Are they allowed to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey? Or is their name blotted out of that book and they're going to die in the wilderness? Well, I'd hate to make a decision based on one little verse all by itself. So let's look at some other verses. Psalm 69, 28. See, this way we can compare Scripture to Scripture. Psalm 69, 28. And here is uh, a Psalm of David, and he's been under some affliction. He has enemies that are out for his destruction. And um, he's asking for God to pour out his indignation on them. These are the imprecatory psalms that we don't pray in the church age, by the way. So pour out your, indicate, your indignation on them in verse 24. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. Now, keep in mind, this is Davidic. This is Old Testament, but it's also foreshadowing Christ. When Christ comes to conquer, it will be the wrath of God the Father that's poured out on the Jewish enemies. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Ultimately, this is messianic and looking prophetically at Jesus himself. They add iniquity to their iniquity and uh, may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. Again, this is an imprecatory psalm and it is not for the church age. I would never for my faith conviction application, I would never look at any unbeliever and pray that they not get saved. All right? And if you've got that kind of hatred where you would look at somebody and pray that they don't get saved, I think that's a problem in the age of grace. That's a problem for the royal family of God. Then you're looking at someone and saying that Christ didn't die for them. In any event, God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Why do I have a short list of those that I want to perish? Okay? So again, there's a reference to salvation and recorded with the righteous. Here it's specifically called the book of life. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. Jesus spoke about this book when he talked to his disciples in Luke 10, 20. A nice rebuke that keeps you from getting too prideful. Luke 10, 20. All the disciples are all excited. Hey, we get to cast out demons. Ooh, look at us. Look at our superpowers now. Aren't we great? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. It's not about what you get or what you can do. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. (laughs) Quit being so full of yourself. Just thank God you're saved. All right? The Apostle Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Keep it as simple as that. Understand that the Lamb's book of life is the single book with Zoe status on record. Zoe life is the only kind of life that's ever described as being eternal. Zoe life is the only life that that, uh, you receive when you trust in Jesus Christ. The gift of God is Zoe life, okay? Any other kind of life you have is biological life, like bios life, right? Or your work life, the, the living that you do to make a living your livelihood as you, as you make an income and feed your family. That is temporal. That is livelihood. That is biological life. Zoe comes by faith in Christ. In the Lamb's Book of Life is the single book. Philippians 4.3, Revelation 3.5, Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, 20, 12 and 15, and Revelation 21.27. 
All right. Man, how long do I want to spend on this? As quickly as we can, because this is uh, really the what I thought we'd spend most time on anyway. Philippians 4.3. You know, this is a, a great device. You can use this in your evangelism. You can use this in your conversation. You can ask people, is your name recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because see, sometimes if you ask them if they're saved, they'll say yes because they don't know any better. They have a, this goofy thing in their mind of what it means to be saved. And well, you know, you know, say, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, yeah, because they were born in a Christian home or whatever. They went to church as a kid or something. They don't understand that, that to be recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life is the reality of who we are in Christ. Philippians 4, 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the Book of Life. It's the only requirement to be a fellow worker. <laughs> Guess what? You're saved, I'm saved, great, we can work together. Okay, We can cooperate in terms of ministry as the Lord leads, as He guides us. Revelation 3, 5. I will not blot Him out of the book of life. Is again the promise of our security in Christ. Revelation 13, 8. Most of these are in Revelation. There's a legitimate grammatical question on this. The expression from the foundation of the world... Do you attach that to book of life or do you attach that to lamb who has been slain? I think it's better to take it as lamb who has been slain. In any event, the book is still in the verse. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life has been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. All right. Anyone who has an ear, let him hear. God, of course, called you. He predestined you before the foundation of the world. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name, have, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So if your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, that means you're saved. Okay? And uh, it means that you're going to be the prime public enemy number one in the uh, government administration of Antichrist. Chapter 20, Judgment Day. And in verse 12 and verse 15, pay attention to the plural books and pay attention to the single book. The Lamb's Book of Life is the single book. It stands on its own. You don't just throw it in with all the rest and call all of them together the books. All right, because you got an encyclopedia set of books, plural, and then you have one single book that remains as a single book. It is never lumped in with those plural books and, and, and counted together with them, never. And so in the things that we're judged from, the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, books were opened and another book was opened. See that? And it, it is so significant and it stands on its own and it is so solitary that you can't just include it in all those other books when all those other books are opened. Okay, It's not like you know, there's a thousand of those other books and they were opened, but now this single book was also opened. And it has to be considered separately from all those other plural books. And this other book is called the Book of Life. And the dead were judged from the things written in the books plural. The books plural that record all of our deeds, the, the wood, hay, and stubble, and the gold, silver, and precious stones, those are all recorded in those books. But whether you go to heaven or not is in the single book. That's in the Lamb's book of life. If your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, verse 15, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The last reference is 2127. In the new heavens and new earth, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The millennium starts with 100% believers. The fullness of time and the new heavens and new earth start and end and everything in between 100% believers. A thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ will populate the new earth. No unbeliever will ever exist in the fullness of times. 
Now, keying in on this phrase, written or recorded for life in Jerusalem, is important that we connect this with John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Let's understand that I think this is a fatal flaw in covenant theology. I think it's a fatal flaw for a whole lot of people that don't think things through. They just have this general sense that, well, everybody's all the same. And there's no real distinctions between Jews and Gentiles or Israel and the church. And it's just all, everybody's the same. If you get saved, you go to heaven. If you, uh, if you don't get saved, you go to hell. Wait a minute. Within the realm of those who are saved, who do have eternal life, there are differences of destinies. And some, as in the Gentile nations and the Jewish nations, have earthly destinies. And right here in Isaiah, we see recorded for life in Jerusalem. That's not us. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he's not been hanging out in Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years. He's been in heaven. He's been at the right hand of God. And so this place where you are designated, this place where the Jews are designated, the place where Job knew that he was going to be designated, the place that Daniel knew he was going to be designated, those were recorded for life in Jerusalem. So we have the phrase recorded for life in Jerusalem in Isaiah 4.3. We have the expression for Daniel in Daniel 12.1. Daniel 12.1. Hmm. Antichrist is waging all kinds of war all over the world, the king of the north, the king of the south, all this prophecy of the coming tribulation. And at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Your people, the Jewish people. Talking to Daniel here. Michael, the great prince, the archangel Michael, he defends the Jewish people. And he will arise and there will come a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. See, God knows. He knows how to rescue. He knows how to rescue. He provides the way of escape. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the dead. And they stand to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and they get cast in the lake of fire. I like Daniel's promise here in 12.13. He says, as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest, physical death, and you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel would have a great reward. He's going to have a great reward. We're going to see it. We're actually going to hand it to him. Think about that. One of the greatest Old Testament believers, Daniel, Noah, and Job, the three great heroes of the Old Testament. And we're going to be seated with Christ when Daniel receives his allotment. What a blessing. Well, what does it say in John 14? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. In this upper room discourse, we have the foundational doctrine for discipleship in the church age. John 13 through 17, this upper room discourse. You want to make a disciple? You want to obey the Great Commission and make a disciple? You teach them John 13 through 17. Teach them everything that that Jesus taught the disciples after Judas walks out of that upper room. And the door closes in John 13, 30. And Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Everything from there to the end of John 17 is foundational doctrine for discipleship in the church age. This includes foot washing. This includes cleansing. This includes how to confess your sins and be restored to fellowship. How many Christians do you know that don't even know how to confess their sins? And they walk around in carnality all day long. Man, sit them down, teach them rebound. Teach them how to confess their sins. Teach them what John, taught, what John recorded here in John 13, and Jesus wrapped himself with a garment and washed their feet. Teach them this doctrine. Teach them how to love one another. That's also in John 13. Teach them about the rapture. Teach them about our allotted portion. We're not recorded for life in Jerusalem. We're recorded for life at the right hand of God the Father. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Many dwelling places. God the Father has a plan and a purpose for the Jewish people. Also for the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Americans, all right? 
God's got a plan for every tribe, tongue, nation that's ever been on the face of this earth. But Jesus says, your place isn't ready yet. Your place, God the Father did not prepare a place for you. He has ordered me to do that. Jesus Christ is preparing the eternal dwelling place for his bride. In my Father's house are presently already designed by the Father and existent many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus Christ told him, I will build my church. It's still future for the time he's speaking here. Likewise, our eternal dwelling place is where he's gone. And he, he arose on his ascension, May 23rd or 24th. I always get that mixed up. May 24th. Anyway, 40 days after his resurrection is when he ascended. No, it had been May 14th because 10 days later was Pentecost on May 24th. So on May 14th, Jesus Christ ascended and he's been preparing a place for us. It's important that we understand that. Many dwelling places. We're not recorded for life in Jerusalem. We're recorded for life in heaven. We are a heavenly people. All right, the tribulation will be a washing and rinsing. A washing and rinsing for Israel and all the nations of the earth. By the way, since we are not an earthly people, we have no part in this earthly washing and rinsing. This is God dealing with Israel again after the church is departed. Israel as a nation will be washed, the founding of the Messianic kingdom. They're going to be washed as a nation. The blood has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. The blood has been shed. He told his disciples that. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. We're going to discuss that at communion here in just a few more minutes. Jesus told his disciples, drink. He said, in remembrance of me, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's been shed. But when does it get applied to the nation of Israel? When are they brought under the bond of the covenant? When is the nation of Israel washed? See, don't confuse the shedding of the blood with the application of the blood. I don't have the time today, but take a look at Ezekiel 36 and see when the nation gets washed. And start to recognize why personal repentance and baptism is a feature of the herald's preaching. Why is it that John the Baptist baptized? Why is it that Elijah will be baptizing? Why is baptism a significant feature for a Jewish person to prepare for the kingdom? When they're preaching the kingdom of God is among you, the kingdom of God is at hand, why were they preaching baptism while they forgave their, while they confessed their sins? It's a personal expression of the national washing. And it's a national washing that's now reserved for second advent because they crucified their Christ in first advent. He talks about here in Isaiah 4 the spirit of washing and the spirit of burning. I'm sorry, the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Well, in the New Testament, we hear about the baptism of the spirit and the baptism of fire. The spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning is Isaiah's prophecy concerning the promised baptism of the spirit and of fire. The herald knew he was just a herald. He knew he wasn't the king. He knew that coming after him was the one. He was not even worthy to untie his sandals. John said, I baptize you with water. The one who comes after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So much, so much. Well, let's look at Matthew 3 real quickly and then we'll wrap this up and go to communion. I think what's happening here in Matthew 3? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're preaching repentance and baptism, you're not giving a church age gospel, but you are speaking to Jewish people about their pending kingdom. All right. And uh, all Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and the district of, around, uh, around the Jordan. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, I've baptized a lot of you here, but I never asked you to confess your sins or tell anybody any of that. It's none of their business. None of my business. All right? It's not church-age baptism in view here. 
But it's the Jewish people preparing for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, at which time when the kingdom is manifest on this earth, the Jewish nation will be washed. They will be washed and rinsed as per Isaiah chapter 4. And as per a lot of other prophecies we'll see in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And notice it is so close. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who come is coming after me. He's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. So there's the spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into his barn. That is, the the true believers, the wheat as opposed to the chaff, get to enter the millennium. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. They're going to be bundled up. They're going to be cast and they're going to be burned. The spirit of judgment, the spirit of burning. Finally, Israel has promised a future cloud and fire canopy. I'm out of time, but go ahead and uh, you know the story anyway, right? The Exodus, Israel and their wilderness wanderings, they were led and blessed with a cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13, Exodus 40, Numbers 9. Just read those chapters. Remind yourself. And you're going to understand, according to Isaiah 4, that this is going to be a, a returning feature. Israel and the Messianic kingdom will have their capital covered by a similar canopy. It will be a feature. It will uh, be very clear on this planet where the glory of the Lord dwells. And it won't be Austin, Texas. It won't be Washington, D.C. or New York. It's going to be Jerusalem. Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. The world capital where every Gentile king will have to present himself once a year to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Man, what a day is that going to be? Nowadays, they get together for stupid stuff, right? Now, world leaders get together for summits. They get together for disarmament conferences. They get together for reparation discussions. They get together to blame Israel and blame the United States and milk the tax dollars they can get. <laughs> that won't be a feature of the coming millennium, all right? They will go to the world capital and they will bend the knee. And if they don't, they get their rain turned off for the following year. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on that coming up as well. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for the righteous branch. And Father, I thank you because your son was so faithful, so humble, born of a virgin, lived his quiet life, his humble life, his obedient life. He didn't come to judge the world in first advent. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to shed the blood of the atonement, to shed the blood of Israel's redemption, the blood of our redemption. Father, um, I thank you for his faithfulness. I thank you for the communion table that we are blessed to, to uh, acknowledge, to celebrate. We uh, are the, the unique people with a heavenly perspective that can look back to first advent, look forward to second advent. Father, the unique people that are in the unique position to identify what has been done and it was in what is yet still unfulfilled, but promised, promised and certain. So, Father, I thank you for the book of Isaiah, and I pray that we might dwell on the impact of branch and all the blessings of things that we have coming up. Father, make it very real to us. I know we're going fast. We're drinking from a fire hose sometimes, Father, but uh, this is your will, and you will uh, make these things clear. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.